You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We're a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. The first scripture reading is from Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it every kind of bird will live, In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. Thank you, Dave. Our second scripture lesson, interestingly, is uh, based on a very similar passage. It's from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. And Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is like someone who would scatter seeds on the ground and would sleep and rise at night and day, and the seeds would sprout and grow, grow. He doesn't know how. The earth produces of itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. But Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use for it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all seeds of earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, and as they were able to hear it, he didn't speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, so... um... Well, sometimes fathers want to be like trees. Trees were a common metaphor that the Bible passages used for righteousness specifically. It was a metaphor for righteousness. Psalm 1, the first psalm in the very beginning of the book of Psalms, you know, our song book that's in the Bible, the very first one, the very first line says, the righteous are like trees planted by streams of water that, prevail, pre- that bear forth fruit every season. They provide every season like trees strong righteous trees so certainly good fathers do that right they're strong they're tall maybe i guess we could have short fathers i guess we could probably not have i mean have some fathers that aren't so strong maybe they could still be good fathers maybe but they provide forth fruit every season that's that's one thing is that they take care of their family so good fathers are like trees There's a particular kind of tree, however, that's used regularly in the Hebrew Scriptures. We heard about it today. To illustrate God's dream for the world. 
particularly God's dream for the people of Israel, the cedars of Lebanon. So the cedars of Lebanon, by the way, is uh, the name of a restaurant where I grew up outside of Lebanon, Kentucky. You might say, though, that Hebrew scriptures talk about the cedars of Lebanon, Lebanon, uh, that the cedars of Lebanon are like the greatest of trees. It grows to hundreds of feet tall, and it's a symbol of might and power protective, right? This is especially true of Ezekiel and Daniel. So you heard this morning already a passage from Ezekiel. Behold the cedar of Lebanon, Ezekiel says, with its fair branches and its shadowy shroud and its high stature, and his top it was among thick bows, Tall, strong, sturdy, proud, respectable, predictable. But just this morning, though, Jesus isn't talking about cedar trees or the cedars of Lebanon. Instead, he's, he almost mocks it here. He says, you think that the dream of God might be about might and power, respectability and predictability, but, he says, To what can we compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed. Mustard? So here's the thing. My daughter, Joey, loves mustard. Loves mustard. Actually, she loves any kind of condiments that she can put, and she goes overboard. So when we get them out, we actually hide them on the table so that she doesn't see them. Because when she wants them, she gets them, and she makes a mess of them. And so we have this, uh, Zion makes this really, really heavy, great mustard uh, dip. And uh, so we put it in, uh, what was that thing that you called? Um, I've got it written here in my notes somewhere. Uh, the ramekin, right? So, so we put it in the ramekin, right? And we're sitting there dipping our bread and dipping our chips or whatever else in this mustard sauce. Cauliflower bites. And so Joey wants some mustard. So Joey then not just takes the thing and dips it in the mustard or takes the thing and smothers it in mustard. She takes her hand and she dips out the mustard and then she takes a big bite, right? And then she wrinkles up her nose and her upper lip and her tongue and her teeth and she says, ooh, spicy. (laughs) Come on, try it. Ooh, spicy. So before studying this passage in the Bible, though, I honestly didn't know anything about mustard. Other than that uh, it can create this burning sensation, you know, right here in the back of your nose. Makes you feel like you're going to have convulsions. Ooh, spicy, you know. Well, most of us, we know this parable about the mustard seed, but not really. We think we do. Our imagination of what this parable means probably comes more from the version in Matthew 17 that says those who have the faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. And so the point is that big and powerful things can have small beginnings. All right, so there you go. You can go home. (laughs) Like how a big, tall, righteous tree starts with just a little seed. The reign of God is like that. Except it's not, according to Jesus. The writers of the gospel, they actually, this is so important because this is one of those cases where you could see the writers of the gospels actually debating each other. And if you didn't know, there's 
four Gospels, right? There's the three synoptic Gospels and then John, who, who's crazy and on drugs and doing his own, own thing. Right? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are in somewhat of a debate. Mark is the first one, and almost all scholars agree with this, and partly because of the way that the Gospel changes from Mark to then Matthew and Luke. An example of how that happens you can see in this passage. In, in this passage, what we have is Jesus, he's talking about a mustard seed. And so here is one of the illustrations that help us know that Mark's is the oldest. As time went on, the gospel seed, they tried to sanitize. They see something in Mark that they don't like that rubs them a little raw. And then they say, well, Jesus must not have meant that. Or that doesn't really work. So they change the language a little bit. So where Mark says, Jesus, Jesus says the rain of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds. You scatter them on the ground and then you get the greatest of all shrubs. That's what Mark says. Smallest of seeds, greatest of all shrubs. But then Matthew says the seeds are actually to be planted in a field, not scattered on the ground. Okay. Becomes greater than the herbs, Matthew says. So you see Matthew's adding. Even becomes a tree. Now, we've gone from seeds that are so small that are scattered on the ground to actually planting them in a field. And we've got, gone from a shrub to now a tree. Okay, so if you didn't know, mustards are, mustard seeds do not grow into trees. Well, so then Mark, or Luke, actually takes it further. He says the seeds are actually planted in a garden and then immediately goes to growing like a tree. So you see how that change happens. So we get mustard seeds that are scattered that become shrubs to seeds that are planted in a garden that become a tree. And see, what Luke is trying to do is Luke knows that Jesus is playing with this passage from Ezekiel about the trees, the cedars of Lebanon that grow tall and strong and stout, that have cast these shadows, that have these places where birds can come and rest. Except Luke thinks that Jesus is trying to quote directly from Ezekiel and just doesn't remember the passage. Mark, however, knows better. There's no doubt that great things have small beginnings. And so that interpretation still fits. We're talking about, you know, like... Dusty seeds, very, very small seeds. But the interesting thing here is that Jesus actually has taken an action image of righteousness being um, like tall trees and almost mocks it. The kingdom, Jesus said, is like a shrub. And better yet, mustard in the Mediterranean times of Jesus' day is more like a weed, not a shrub. John Dominic Crossan puts it this way. The point, in other words, is not just that the mustard plant starts as a proverbially small seed and grows into a shrub of three or four feet. Remember, the cedars of Lebanon are hundreds of feet, of feet tall. Or even higher, but that it tends to take over wherever, wherever it's planted in ways that it's not wanted. It tends to get out of control. It tends to attract birds within cultivated areas where they're not particularly desired. Has anybody ever seen a scarecrow in a garden, right? Why would you put something in a garden that you want to attract birds, right? So that being said, Jesus, um, 
so Jesus, what, what the, for Jesus, what the kingdom of God was like is not this mighty cedar of Lebanon, not quite like common weed, quite like a common weed. It's more like a pugnant shrub with dangerous takeover properties, something you would want in only small, carefully controlled doses if you control it at all. So you see here, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this weed that if you plant it, it's not just like a weed. It's like this uncontrollable shrub that would just take over your whole garden. And then you'll get birds and then they'll eat all of your other seeds and you won't be able to grow anything. It's like this uncontrollable mess. Small, careful doses. Because remember, mustard is ooh spicy, right? William Herzog says, the goal of sowing is not to turn it into something it's not, a tree, but it's to maximize what it is, a ubiquitous shrub, a force to be reckoned with. The kingdom of God is not a tall, righteous tree. It's a force to be reckoned with. We try too much like a church, I think, to grow, to become like these tall cedar trees. We want a strong future. We want a future that we can control. We want to be strong and tall and in charge. But the kingdom of God is not like that at all. It's wild. It's an agent of confusion. It's dangerous. It's a force to be reckoned with. And if we're, if we're not called to become strong, tall, and in charge, a term that then the term kingdom probably doesn't even work at all. Christians can use our religion to push people around so that we can organize the world according to our own agenda. Anybody seen that this week? Maybe the term kingdom doesn't work at all. If, king, if the kingdom of God is not like this tall shrub, tall tree that's in charge, but rather like a shrub, then maybe we're supposed to scatter seeds and watch God confuse the world with a radical, wild, untamable love. So what do we use then if we're not going to use the term kingdom? Well, you know I have tended to not use the term kingdom. I tend to not use it. I tend to help you learn other language like the beloved community. That's a phrase that I use quite often because that was an imagery that, that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to help us use so that we could get an imagination, not of someone sitting on a throne dictating the world, but a community, a, a different, something different. Well, another, another term that we can use uh, comes from uh, Ada Maria Sassidius. So she's a Latin American theologian, and she says that the phrase that we should use is kingdom. So she erases the G. The kingdom of God. She said that the kingdom of God is present when the fullness of God becomes a day-to-day -day reality in our lives, where we are kin to each other, where we're true brothers and sisters, where the good of the whole is the good of the individual. Like we're family. The kingdom of God is really not like a kingdom at all. It's like a family. And while we may think that the father is good because the father sets the rules down, the truth is, is that the father's rules are only good if they're protecting the family. Right? It's only, only, a father is only as good as the family is. See, a seed starts off small and then grows. Kingdom seeds take off and become uncontrollable. So our job is not to control it. It's simply to scatter it everywhere, you see. I want to leave you with this thought. The seeds of the kingdom 
are not merely like charity. And we've had conversations about charity recently. If we've said in our conversations, charity is not bad, it's not bad. But it's more like the, a seed for a big, tall cedar tree, you see. Big, tall cedar trees are good, or big, tall fruit trees are better, right? They produce fruit, and so it's best in the ways that it helps a few people, right? But we're not just called for a vision to be able to help a few people. See, because mostly what big, tall trees do is they just point everyone else to themselves because they're important. They're the provider. But when charity is at its worst, it's not just pointing to itself. It grows tall and strong like a big cedar tree that has large administrative roots and makes little difference, but usually becomes large enough that the world can see it. Now, I've worked with lots of, lots of nonprofits around the world, charity organizations, and almost all of them are the same. Their administrative cost is huge. The amount of money that you give them, the percentage of it that actually makes a difference is very small. But everyone knows about them, right? So they spend a lot of their time and energy making themselves known so that they can get more money, so that they can hire new administrators. Now, I'm not saying that they do bad work, but... Jesus, on the other hand, is calling us to go beyond charity to solidarity. So solidarity is what happens when we go from just merely giving to actually loving. And by love, I mean specifically loving those that the world tries to convince us are unlovable. That's what Jesus did. He loved the outcasts and the oppressed and the left out and the lost and the diseased and the dispossessed. Read the story and see how Jesus' movement got started. He started the movement that would change the world. And that's the story of the beginning of our tradition, you see. It wasn't with someone with a lot of money making some big castles and then telling the whole world, come here, I've got the truth. It was a whole bunch of oppressed, left out, dispossessed ragamuffins, right? If we want to see ourselves as initiating the kingdom, then we have to learn to start caring for, maybe what if we start caring for those who are left out, those who are unlovable? Maybe the chronically homeless might be an example. Now, we might love to serve them at the soup kitchen, but a famous theologian named John Wesley, who started the holiness movement that is the Methodist Church, he said, you can't love the homeless if you don't know their name. How many of us know the names of those that we serve at the soup kitchen? Or even their stories? I'm not saying it's bad that we feed them. I'm only saying that that's not necessarily the step. It's, not, it's a very tiny step towards love. But what if we were, if solidarity though, see, solidarity with the chronically homeless is when we see them as if they're our own flesh and blood. We're kin. Like their father and our father are the same. Like our father who sets the rules, who's supposed to be the provider, is maybe going to come back home and say, hey, why are you not taking care of each other? See, that might be wild and dangerous. So the next thing you know, you might... So notice, if, if you start to have solidarity and you know their name and you start taking care of them as if they're your own family, you better watch out, though, because you know what's going to happen next. You might have too many of them to become your friends and now you're no longer in control. Right? Isn't that the fear? That, by the way, is what happened to someone named Rudy Rasmus. So you can search and find this online, but... 
he, he wrote a book called Only Love, and he started this church um, in an abandoned building in Houston. And he said at the beginning to his community, I'll not be a part of an institution of religion that judges or marginalizes a person based on race, ability, gender, orientation, identity, or social status, but I will be a part of a love revolution that fights for the rights of people everywhere to love and be loved by God. You know what happened at his church? He actually started paying homeless people to come to church. The next thing that you know, within a couple of years, his church was one of the largest in the country. It became so large that now it's a part of a large complex that has apartment buildings and nonprofits and food and health programs. See, the charity is a result of the kingdom that he was initiating. It wasn't his beginning place. But the most striking thing for me is not just because Beyonce, I don't know if anybody knows who Beyonce is, but he's Beyonce's pastor, but that his congregation has one of the largest percentages of homelessness, of, of a homeless, inside of any congregation in the United States. And it started out that way. That's actually what he intended it to be. It's a large megachurch that's centered around the homeless population in Houston. So that's what solidarity does. It's like a mustard branch. You might be afraid that if you become friends with the chronically homeless and start treating them as if they're your family, that they might somehow take advantage of you. But what ends up happening is, is you can actually start a love revolution. Seasons of love pass, and it not only bears lasting fruit, it spreads wild and becomes a force to be reckoned with. Like Joey, you know, mustard. It's ooh, spicy. Everybody knows it's there, and maybe you don't want too much of it. But it can take over the world. I'm not sure what sowing seeds of love looks like here in Brookside. But if we are in the business of following Jesus and sowing these mustard kingdom seeds, it's going to be risky. It may not be us caring for the chronically homeless. It might, but it might not. And I can promise you whatever it is, it's going to get out of hand. It's just going to. Because we're not trying to plant a garden that we're in control of. We're scattering mustard seeds of love. But if we're faithful, a love that is out of our hands grows into something so big and life-giving that it's a force to be reckoned with. So my challenge for us today is to ask this. Can we put aside our dreams of becoming big, tall, righteous, strong cedar trees? Stop trying to be kingdom builders and become sowers of the kingdom. So ask yourself, here's my question. Are we a church that wants to be ooh, spicy like mustard? Maybe not. But if we are, we've just got to start sowing seeds of the kingdom. Amen.